portion we were Hebrews chapter 6, we'll read once again verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So just to get right into our study this afternoon, this passage, as we said, is all about the assurance of salvation. We considered this morning, number one, the premise or basis of assurance, and we saw how that it is built, that is to say, our our assurance of salvation is based or premised on who God is in terms of his character. He's the God who is unchangeable in his ways, and he's the God who is unfailing in his word. The second place, not only is the is our, is our assurance of salvation premised on the character of God, his character is the unchanging one who cannot lie, but our assurance of salvation is based on the crowning achievement of Christ. Our assurance of salvation is based on the crowning achievement of Christ. And if you look at verses 19 and 20, verses 19 and 20 make reference to the fact that our Lord Jesus has gone into the inner place behind the curtain. We have here an allusion to the Holy of Holies, which is the very place, the holy place the, where, where, where God resides. It is there that Christ is said to have gone, verse 20, as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, besides verses 19 and 20, there are three other verses in the book of Hebrews that mentions the post-resurrection passage of our Lord Jesus into heaven, into the holy of holies. We have Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, which tells us we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of of God, And in light of this truth, the writer encourages his readers, let us hold fast our confession. We can be assured of our salvation we, and hence hold fast our confession because we have a high priest in heaven in our Lord Jesus. Hebrews chapter 8 verse 1, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of God on the throne of the majesty in heaven. And Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
And so these verses highlight for us the glorious achievement of our Lord's redeeming, atoning work on our behalf. And that our Lord Jesus entered into the inner place behind the curtain there in heaven on our behalf speaks eloquently of the culmination of his redemptive work in these verses, that is verses 19 and 20. Our Lord Jesus, we see, is portrayed in at least two capacities. First, is portrayed as our great high priest who has entered once for all into the Holy of Holies. You remember back in ancient Israel, um, the priest, the, the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies of the earthly tabernacle once per year. And they had to be very careful how they entered upon their ministry on that particular day. They could not enter flippantly once per year. They were allowed into the Holy of Holies. But here in our text, we learn that Jesus, our great high priest, entered the Holy of Holies, that is heaven itself, a feat which no earthly high priest could have ever accomplished. And that certainly says something as to the matter of our assurance of salvation, because the word of God tells us there that he entered into the inner place behind the curtain, the holy of holies, as a forerunner on our behalf, the word of God says. And the Greek term that's translated there, forerunner, was used to describe soldiers whose function it was to scope out a territory before the advance of an army. And this was to ensure, of course, that the area was safe for the troop to enter. Our text is saying that Christ, described here in chapter 2, verse 10, as the captain of our salvation, has gone into heaven as a forerunner for us. And as our forerunner into the Holy of Holies, he has gone there to prepare our passage into glory. And this reminds us of our Lord Jesus' statement, his statement in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, where he said to his disciples, and by extension to you and me, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So look at what the writer to the Hebrews is doing. The writer to the Hebrews is saying that because of Christ's crowning achievement, and uh, the crowning achievement would, be, would represent here the culmination of his redemptive work, because after he went to the cross, he came back from the dead, he ascended into heaven. Among the things he did, he entered, as it were, the Holy of Holies, and he took his seat by the right hand of the majesty on high, the God of heaven. Not only is our Lord Jesus portrayed here in verse 20 in his capacity as our great high priest, but second, he's portrayed as the archetype of that ancient high priest, Melchizedek. We read there in verse 20 of his having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this is, in fact, the third time in the book of Hebrews we have the third reference here in the book of Hebrews to this personage known as Melchizedek, the high priest. He's mentioned in chapter 5, verse 6. He's mentioned in chapter 10, 5, verse 10. And here in our text, as we said in our previous study, one distinguishing feature of the 
priesthood of Melchizedek was this, that unlike the priests, uh, Aaron and his descendants, that of Melchizedek was not by descent. Melchizedek is portrayed in scripture as having his priesthood directly established by God. He appears out of nowhere in the book of Genesis, and he's, he's characterized as a priest of God most high forever. And Christ, the writer is saying here, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and even beyond Melchizedek, in that not only is he the divine son of God, but his is a high priestly ministry that transcends time. A high priestly ministry in which atonement for sin is not made annually, such as what was done by the priests of the Old Testament, but once for all, a full, perfect, and complete atonement. Because going back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, after he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And later down, the writer says, elsewhere in the book of Hebrews, he says, for by one sacrifice, he has sanctified forever those whom he has redeemed. So these and other blessed realities constitute the grounds, the underpinnings of our assurance of eternal salvation. So we've looked at the premise or the basis of our salvation. So we look finally at the portrayal of our assurance. How is our assurance of salvation portrayed here in Hebrews 6, 13 to 20? Well, beginning in verses 18 through 20, we see that on the basis of God's immutable and integrous character, the fact that he's not subject to change, the fact that he's incapable of lying, it's impossible for him to lie. Verse 18, the writer says this, quote, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Let's deal first of all with this matter of having fled for refuge. What is the writer talking about here? And for his Jewish readers, the expression would have evoked memory of the six cities of refuge that God had instructed Israel to put aside uh, for the event that if someone accidentally killed a person with no malicious intent, it was, a, it was just simply an accident, that person could flee to one of those cities and would remain there until the death of the high priest. That person would find protection. That person would find refuge there in one of those cities of refuge. And what a vivid picture we have here of that refuge that is to be found in the Lord Jesus one who, through his suffering and death, absorbed the wrath of God, who suffered, who died, who bled on that cross, so that we might find refuge in him from the wrath of God. And here's the message this afternoon, particularly to those who are not saved. You need, my friends, this refuge from the storm of God's wrath to which you are continually exposed. A lot of people do not understand this, but the word of God teaches it that if you're not a Christian, if you are not saved, if you are not born again, according to the word of God, John chapter 3, verse 18, the wrath of God abides on you. 
No, this is not the preacher's feeling. This is not some idea concocted by way of interpretation. The word of God explicitly says that those who are unsaved, those who are unregenerate, are constantly under the wrath of God. And it, here's a message. The message of the gospel is this, that it is in Jesus Christ that we have a refuge from the wrath which is to come. We now consider the assurance that comes to the believer in Christ who has fled for refuge. The refuge, of course, being the Lord Jesus himself. And the first thing we notice is this, that grounded on the faithful, unchanging character of God, our assurance of, of salvation is superlatively described as a strong encouragement. Look at verses 17 and 18. How is our assurance of salvation portrayed? It is portrayed, first of all, as strong encouragement. Verses 17 and 18. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, and remember we said this morning, the heirs of the promise would be you and me, believers in Jesus Christ, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, here it comes, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. That's the language of assurance of salvation. What the writer is saying here is, look, because of Christ's crowning achievement, because of the fact that he has entered the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, and coupled with the fact of God's integrity, God's immutability, we who have fled to Christ can be strongly encouraged. Not just encouraged, but strongly encouraged. We could say, well, we have enormous encouragement, massive encouragement. The idea is this, that our knowledge and conviction concerning who God is, his promises or understanding that having made a promise, he will most surely fulfill it, that is, every word and purpose will surely be accomplished, provide superabundant motivation for our trusting him. That's the idea of great encouragement. Second, grounded on the faithful, unchanging character of God or assurance of salvation, notice verse 18 is characterized as steadfast expectancy. So number one, our assurance of salvation is described in terms of strong encouragement. But second, our assurance of salvation is characterized as steadfast expectancy. Look at verse 18 once again. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement. Here it comes to hold fast to the hope set before us. Now, what is this hope that is set before us? Well, first of all, let's state what it is not. This hope that is set before us is not some kind of vague optimism. It is not some kind of nebulous expectation. You know, the idea of somebody saying, well, I hope so. Are you going to be successful in your undertaking with that project? I hope so. No, no, no. Here's the point. Biblical hope is not a matter of hope so, but a matter of no so. 
This hope is not wishful thinking. Also, this hope is not essentially and primarily a subjective feeling. The fact is, hope, as used in the word of God, in the context of biblical theology, means this. It means confident, assured expectation. Christian hope, we would say, is distinctively confident and assured expectation. Why is that so? Because once again, it is grounded on the sure realization of God's saving purpose for us in Christ. All based, of course, on his sure, infallible, unchanging word. So that our hope of Christian or hope as Christians is not a matter of the way we feel at any particular point in time, but it is objectively based in the reality of who God is and of what God has done in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we see in verse 18 that our assurance of salvation is described in terms of our holding fast to the hope set before us. The imagery here is drawn from wrestling. Uh, We have the picture here of the wrestler having a grip, a firm grip on his opponent. That's what Paul is saying when we are assured of our salvation. What then happens is this, that we hold fast to the hope that is set before us. We hold tenaciously. We hold resolutely to our faith in Christ, knowing that what God has promised concerning our salvation will never come to failure. One paraphrase rendering of verse 18 goes as follows, and I don't encourage reading paraphrases as a matter of habit, but here's what one paraphrase describes, how it describes this verse. He says, we who have run for very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. That's the, that's the idea here that's suggested in this passage, the hope that is set before us, because we are assured that God will bring it to fruition. We hold to it tenacious, we, we cling to it tightly with a firm grip with a never-let-go attitude. Now, regarding this hope that is set before us, the question is, in what does it consist This hope, we would say, that is set before us concerns the glories of our salvation that are yet to be fully realized. Such glories includes the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, described in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, as our blessed hope. Paul says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It consists of this, the prospect of our receiving transformed bodies, which will be like Christ's glorious body, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. This prospect of the hope that is set before us, it it involves seeing our Lord Jesus and being like him, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Indeed, the prospect of our ever being with the Lord for all eternity, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 17. These are some of the glorious future realities that constitute the hope that is set before us. Yes, our Lord Jesus is coming one of these days. We are going to be transformed. We're going to be like him. We are going to share in his glory at his coming. We are going to be like him, says the Apostle John, for we shall see him as he is. 
And when we are confident of God's saving purposes toward us, the word of God is suggesting here that we will cling tenaciously to this hope that is set before us. So in terms of our assurance of this salvation, resting on the unchanging and ever faithful character of God, such assurance we possess is expressed not only in terms of strong encouragement, but in terms of steadfast expectancy. Now, thirdly, in terms of our assurance of salvation, resting on the unchanging the ever faithful character of God, such assurance is expressed in terms of our being securely established. For note regarding the hope that is set before us, verse 18, the writer says, there in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. That's the language of assurance. In verse 18, our salvation Christ is depicted as our fleeing for refuge, that is our finding coverage and protection from the wrath of God in him. Here in verse 19, the metaphor changes to that of our being as a ship that is anchored securely, steadfastly, and surely. You know, when dropped into the ocean, and I'm not sure how, you know, modern setup of um, the, the ships are concerned, but at least back in ancient times, when dropped in the ocean, a ship's anchor would fall and then would get embedded in the bottom of the sea and in that way secure the ship. And what the writer is saying here, what the writer is suggesting here is that just as an anchor dropped into the sea takes hold of the unseen bottom, so it is that hope, as one commentator puts it, reaches into the future and lays hold of the invisible. Now, the hope set before us is an anchor of the soul, speaks of the believer's hope. It speaks of his confident assurance. It speaks of his unflagging expectation that God will bring into effect all that he has promised with regard to our salvation. Now, regarding this our anchor of hope, we find at least two wonderful facts in verses 19 and 20. First of all, we see the fact of its durability. Its durability. This anchor of hope is described here in verse 19 as being sure and steadfast, which is to say it is most certain, it is reliable. Our assured hope of salvation is sure and steadfast because, you see, like the cables of a ship, it is strong, sturdy, and hence safe and most reliable. And what this means, beloved, is that this hope, which will enable the soul to withstand temptation, which will enable the soul to withstand trials, in the same way that an anchor securely holds a ship, so that it might not drift away. That's exactly what this hope does. It stabilizes us. It keeps us steady. It keeps us settled so that we might not waver and wander away from the faith. Yes, the storms may rock us. The storms may shake us. But they can never move us away from our hope in Christ. 
Such is the anchor that is set before us. It stabilizes us. It strengthens us. It settles the soul. And the hymn writer, Priscilla Owens, wrote of the abiding security of this anchor of hope as follows. You know that song very well. The song goes, will your anchor hold in the storms of life? When the clouds unfold their wings of strife, when the strong tides lift and the cable strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? It is safely moored till the, will the storm withstand, for it is well secured by the Savior's hand, and the cables passed from his heart to mine can defy the blast through strength divine. It will firmly hold in the straits of fear when the breakers have told the reef is near, though the tempests rave and the wild winds blow, not an angry wave shall our bark overflow. And then here's verse four. It will surely hold in the floods of death when the waters cold chill our latest breath. On the rising tide, it can never fail while our hopes abide within the veil. You know the chorus very well. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, rounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. So we have the durability of our anchor, the strength, the, the, the sturdiness, the security of our anchor. But secondly, Note the direction of our anchor. The direction of our anchor. You see, whereas the anchors of a ship descend the body of water the ship is in, the Christian's anchor of hope goes upward and is rooted in heaven where God is. You see what's happening? The ship has its anchor going down to the bottom of the ocean. The Christian hope, the anchor of the soul, is anchored upward, right where God himself resides. And of this hope, we read in verse 19, verse 19, that it enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. As we said earlier, this is an allusion to the Holy of Holies in which the priests of the earth, the tabernacle, went once per year. And what a marvelous picture, what vivid images we find here related to assurance of salvation. We have seen in verse 18, Christ our refuge. We have seen Christ as our anchor of hope. And here in verse 20, Christ our forerunner who is gone ahead of us into heaven. According to the writer of the Hebrews, it is into this heavenly sanctuary that our hope has entered. What assurance. All this because Christ, our high priest, as he tells us, has an eternal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. What does all of this mean? It means that all our anxieties, all our fears, all our doubts regarding our, our eternal future are baseless. Not only is it that we have an unchanging God whose promises are sure, but we have a risen, ascended Savior. We have a high priest who has gone ahead of us as a forerunner, a high priest whose present ministry is geared toward preparing us for glory. 
which means that our future and final salvation is eternally guaranteed. Tremendous passage. The unchanging character of God or assurance of salvation is based on the character of God. It's based on the fact that he's unchanging in his ways. It's based on the fact that he is unfailing in his word. It is based on the fact of Christ's crowning achievement as our high priest, as our forerunner, the one who is presently in heaven as our high priest. Because of that, we are secure. We are settled. We are safe. And there's motivation for us, as the writer of the Hebrews says, to press on and to lay hold of the hope that is set before us. When we consider all of these things, this is what the writer is saying. We can't be sluggish. We can't be complacent. Why? Because of all that Christ has done and because of all the glorious prospects that are ahead of us. It's worth the fight. It's worth the fight. It's worth the patience to the finish. May God grant that this would be so in your life and mine. For his name's sake. Amen.